Welcome to the New Mind Creator Podcast, episode number 99, interview with cognitive behavior wellness coach, Ronnie Davis. I'm your host, Maurice, the New Mind Creator. Ronnie spent almost 10 years helping people transform their bodies as an award-winning personal trainer and nutrition and wellness coach. She's been a nationally qualified champion figure athlete, written for bodybuilding websites, and has been featured by Muscle Insider and Bodybuilding.com. But she also spent two decades struggling with her own weight and eating disorder, depression, panic attacks, and anxiety disorder. Last year, she left the fitness industry to become a speaker, mindfulness-based cognitive behavior coach. She made this switch as a result of what she learned during her own recovery and years of frustration watching traditional wisdom surrounding healthy eating and weight loss fail most people. The problem, as she says, is that our brains control everything, our thoughts, habits, beliefs, and behaviors, all the things that determine our results, but we've been ignoring them. Ronnie is on a mission to help people rewire their minds to focus on behavior and habit modification at the brain level. She works to empower women to release weight, food, and body shame in order to learn love and accept their bodies and to break free from a diet culture that she says is built upon shame, fear, and distrust in ourselves. It feeds on our insecurities and feels the story that we are not worthy of love, acceptance, and goodness. If a scale displays the right number or we eat the right things. To that end, she's created the Cognitive Eating Academy, the first program of its kind to incorporate the science of mindfulness, intuitive eating, and cognitive behavioral strategies to help lifelong dieters go from weight, food, and scale obsessed to happy, healthy, and free. She's also currently writing the second book, contributes to sites like Tiny Buddha, Having Time, and other popular blogs, hosts web shops, group programs, online courses, and is widely passionate about helping people rebuild their trust, their self-trust rather, compassion, connection, and heal their relationships with food, themselves, and their bodies. Are you a sports fan? Well, I think legally I have to be a Patriots fan. (laughs) (laughs) But shh, I don't really watch. <laughs> yeah, I know it's uh, definitely a big sports fan, especially since, you know, the Patriots have been winning and Boston have had a resurgent, the Celtics over the years. So cool deal. Cool deal. Yeah. yeah. So you overcame bulimia along with a host of other things. What was that experience like for you? to be in the midst of it to be bulimic yeah like that experience and overcoming it (laughs) um so being bulimic is a little bit like living in hell (laughs) and it's a lot like living with a monster in your head it started for me um I mean, I guess it really started for me in my teens when I started dieting trying to lose weight I had started um, initially just with like, you know, low carb dieting and that kind of thing. And that ended up causing weight gain like it does in so many people. And then in my early 30s, I ended up actually finally losing weight on my own. And I still wasn't happy. What I had done in my early 30s to lose weight was I just sort of started basically starving myself. I just sort of didn't eat enough and the weight kind of came off pretty easily, but I still wasn't happy with how I looked. I would still look in the mirror. You know, I lost a bunch of weight and I would still look in the mirror and I would still hate myself and what I saw when I looked in the mirror. And so I hired a trainer, an online trainer, 
who gave me a meal plan. And it was my first foray into, quote, clean eating. And within four days of her, you know, trying to willpower my way through her clean eating meal plan, I had my first ever binge. And I clearly remember the day it was a, and what I had, even it was a bag of jujubes. (laughs) I ate the entire bag and I was so disgusted with myself. The next day I starved myself even worse. And I ran for about three hours to try to make up for my binge the day prior. And then within eight months, I was sitting in a therapist's office being diagnosed with bulimia. Now for me, and, and I was shocked because I never threw up. I wasn't a bulimic that tends to throw up. As a matter of fact, I couldn't. It wasn't because I didn't try. I certainly tried. I just couldn't make myself throw up. So my compensatory behaviors were always overexercise and starvation in the days following a binge. And I didn't even know that that was bulimia until the therapist told me. And um, yeah, so I would eat until my heart was palpitating so bad that I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I wouldn't like I would have so much food in my stomach that I would be full up to my lungs like I couldn't even breathe properly. I was so full. My fingers would um, be numb and tingly. I would eat so much. There were many nights that I thought that I was going to need to go to the emergency room or I was going to die in my sleep because I'd eaten so much. Sit on the bathroom floor and try to make myself throw up and then hate myself even more because I couldn't make myself throw up. It's it's. It's really deep sickness. Like it it felt like I had a monster in my head. Uh, And then every time I would have a binge, the next day I would, you know, work out for a million hours and starve myself to try to make up for it. It was, it was hell. It was rough. And then of course, depression and anxiety come with it because you can't live like that and not, and not have other mental illnesses with it. Like you can't be a happy person living that way. So did you, what do you believe uh, caused this image thing that you were battling with? Oh, the same thing that causes it in millions of other women all over the world. You know, we're programmed to believe that in order to be worth something, we have to look a certain way. We have to be a certain size. We have to look a certain way. And if we don't, then we are worthless. Right. And as soon as I started putting a couple of pounds on, you know, to to me and like millions of other women, that's a fate worse than death. And then the diet industry comes along and says, it's okay though. Like we see you're getting fat and that's not good, but it's okay. We have all the answers and we can solve them. If you can just willpower your way through this diet, everything will be fine and you'll be good again. (laughs) So that sounds, that does sound pretty tough. Um, was there, um, what was your childhood like? Did you have any of these, um, uh, image things going on in your early childhood too, or it just developed like over time? Well, it's funny because my early childhood was tough, but you know, when I was going to see the therapist, I was always, I would sob to him like, why am I like this? I don't understand. I never made the connection between how my childhood contributed to my, my adult issues. So my father was uh, an alcoholic and my mother was, you know, an abused wife who was the sole income and she was just trying to survive, you know, the alcoholic father. And so I grew up in this house that was scary. Um, I grew up in a house where I felt like my dad was a monster and I thought that because he was a monster and I was his kid, that I was bad too. And so I grew up my entire life with this underlying belief that I was, that I was worthless and I was, you know, somehow damaged or not as good as other people. We never really had any money either. So I always had this notion that because, you know, we didn't have nice things that I didn't deserve nice things. And so there was always this underlying theme throughout my entire life that just, played that I didn't even know was there that just, you know, the story of just being worthless. And so, you know, when you feel like you as a person is worthless and then you're taught that you have to be thin to be worth anything, you know, my entire self-worth was wrapped up in how I looked. 
understand. So did so while you were going through this process, you were in the midst of this recovery, mm-hmm. did you actually believe that you could overcome it or did you have a pessimistic attitude? So it's funny because the whole time I was in therapy, I was in therapy for probably a year or two. I can't remember. It's been a while. Um, but it's probably years ago I was in therapy. I was very pessimistic the entire time I was in therapy. As a matter of fact, some of my worst binges of life were days after therapy or like leaving therapy because I, I never felt like I got any answers from him. He, I never felt like he helped me understand why I was the way I was. Why couldn't I control myself with food? Like why was why was all of this happening to me? And I would feel, leave there feeling so helpless and hopeless that they would be some of the worst binge days ever. And eventually I stopped going to therapy and I started reading. And as soon as I realized that everything that was wrong in my life, everything that was wrong in my life, not just the weight and food stuff, but everything that wasn't working came down to the fact that I I hated who I was. I was ashamed of who I was. I felt completely worthless in the world. Everything that was wrong in my life came down to that issue, that core issue. As soon as I realized that, All of a sudden I had hope because I went, okay, well then, so I have to stop obsessing over the weight and food and I have to fix this cause. And so as soon as I had something that I could work on, like that I I recognized as the cause of it all, I felt way more uh, empowered, I guess, to be able to fix it because I knew then I had something that was fixable. Whereas before I didn't know why I was the way I was. So I didn't know what, like how to fix it. But as soon as I recognized, okay, so this is the cause. The cause is the relationship that I have with myself and the relationship that I have with my body and with food is a reflection of the relationship that I have with myself. So if I change the relationship that I have with myself, everything gets fixed. And it was scary, like it was really scary because I was somebody who was, you know, obsessed with keeping a 22 inch waist and the thought of not being obsessed about that and just, you know, uh oh, what if I gain a little weight in this process? (gasps) That would be the worst thing ever. (laughs) Right. So it was scary to sort of say, okay, I can't, I can't obsess about that right now. I have to focus on fixing the stuff inside. That was really scary at first but it, I definitely felt hope. I've always felt like just because I'm not good at one thing now doesn't mean I can't get good at it. And so I took the same approach with this, right? I may have a terrible relationship with myself right now, but that doesn't mean that I cannot learn to have a better one. And so that's what I started doing. Great. So do you believe that people who were just interacting with you casually and friends and so forth do you think they were able to perceive your inter inner struggles with the weight and bulimia no well so when I was in the middle of it there were probably two people in the world that knew the depths of the hell I was living that was it the rest of it you know it's it's not something that you advertise to the people around you. You keep it very hidden. And the weight loss and fitness world makes it really easy to keep hidden because you can hide all of those really destructive and dysfunctional um, habits under the guise of living healthy, right? Like you can exercise and you can not eat bad, quote, bad things and all of this stuff. And And you can be in the middle of an eating disorder while you're doing those things, but everybody looks at you like you're doing everything right because those are supposedly the things that are healthy. So you get, you almost get celebrated for it. Right. But there were like two or three people in my real life that, that knew once I recovered from the bulimia, I would start talking to clients about my struggles because I didn't ever want to hide it. Um, but I, when I was in the middle of it, it was not something that I was ready to talk about. And I've only started talking about it publicly just in the last year or so. And that is scary. What makes it scary for you? Well, because I mean, nobody wants to admit like, you know, nobody wants to admit, first of all, that they struggle with anything. Certainly not me. I've always been somebody that needed to have, you know, I needed to have all my stuff together all of the time. I needed to you know, I took care of everybody else. I didn't need anybody for anything. I had everything under control. And, 
you know, this perfect little strong, you know, inspirational vision of, you know, I don't know (laughs) what you're supposed to be or something. And the, the thought of admitting that you struggle with anything, let alone something like mental illness and an eating disorder, no less, and bulimia, no less, the grossest of all eating disorders. <laughs> I mean, that's embarrassing. We associate overeating in particular with, you know, gluttony and sloth. And, you know, there's just this image of what somebody that's an overeater looks like. And so it's really... I carried a lot of shame, I guess, for a lot of years. And so I, part of releasing the shame really became talking about it. You know, I had to just sort of be like, I'm just not carrying that anymore as shame. That's not on me. It's just, you know, it's things that I struggled with. And I started realizing that there are people that are still living that way. And I can't do anything about helping them if I'm not open with my own. Yeah, because I I definitely can understand that as something you overcome and the shame associated with it could definitely uh, cause you to restrain some things. Deep shame for a lot of years. Yeah. Yeah. But the more, I guess, you talk about it, the more empowered you're going to even become at doing it. So. Well, absolutely. Because it's like every time you're, you know, every time you give your voice, give a voice to shame, it's like it loses a little bit of its power. Yeah, that's, that's really good. That's really good. So how do you think, uh, you know, because it's a, it's a mental picture that you're seeing of yourself. Mm -hmm. And how do you think that affected your personal relationships? while you were growing up oh <laughs> not even just while I was growing up pretty much my entire life I've only you know I've I mean obviously I've had personal relationships I'm I'm a human like everybody but I've always been very um protective of who I let get close you know I've, I've I, I mastered resting bitch face and I walked around just with a chip on my shoulder and angry at the world and and you know I, I've had a very a small handful of close relationships in my life but to everybody else I've always been very much like you know there's a wall around me and stay away because just this fear that if I let anybody get close then they'll see who I really am and if they see who I really am then they're going to know that who I pretend to be is just a facade it's just all fake (laughs) I understand so was there was there anyone who was always in your corner that really went to bat for you, even throughout this process, the ups and the downs? Was there always someone who was a constant that you can constantly call on no matter what time of day or anything? Yes, I, I've had, again, very small handful of people, but I wouldn't usually because... Uh, again, you know, I, I've, I've always had to, I have to be the one that takes care of everybody else. And I have to keep, like, I can't let anybody see that I need help with anything. So even no matter how badly I'm struggling, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to reach out to you. It's, it's, it's not something that I've ever done well. I'm getting better at it in recent years. I'm really starting to try to connect when I'm struggling now. But, you know, when I was in the middle of that, I really wouldn't very much. As a matter of fact, I would go in the opposite direction and I would full on hide. Like I would, you know, I would draw the blinds in my living room, just completely shut. And I would not even leave my house or talk to a single person in the world, not even my mother for days on end, just because it was, you know, I'm suffering so badly and I'm, I feel like such a terrible person that I just, I didn't even want to be in the world. Never mind, let anybody see me or talk to me in that state. Yeah, that sounds like real heavy shame and feeling like you are the person that should save the world, so to speak. Everybody comes to you for strength and then you're weak and don't know how to handle it. Yes. And if I'm weak, then I'm useless to everybody. I can't help them. So I just hide from the world because I can't help them anyway. So I just hide. Wow. Yeah, you write what you said at the beginning. It it sounds like a prison for sure. And Ooh, moreover, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> wow. So what role do you believe our brains, the psychology of us plays in getting us into negative thought patterns or getting us out of those negative thought patterns? In general or with food or both? It could be, let's start with food and then we can go general. So with food, the role that our brains play with food is really complicated. So one of the first things that typically happens when we're children is we start hearing the things that we're supposed to eat and the things that we're not supposed to eat. These foods are good. These foods are bad. These foods will make you skinny. These foods will make you fat. Fat is bad. Don't get fat. Right. And, you know, and we have parents that tell us, you know, make sure you clean your plate, forget whether or not you're still hungry or not. You can't leave the dinner table till your plate is clean. So we stop, you know, our brain starts learning that we can't be trusted to tell when we're full. We start, our brain starts associating food with comfort at a young age. You know, when we're upset and Grammy takes us some cookies, our brain starts associating food with comfort. And the food rules that I just spoke of, when people start talking about, you know, this is good and this is bad. The problem with that is that in our brains, when we hear this food is good and this food is bad, what happens when we eat one of these, quote, bad foods more often than not, is that it's not that just that we go, you know, oh, well, that was, you know, not the greatest choice. I'll make a better choice next time. Our brains go, you're bad. You ate something bad. Therefore, you are bad. And it starts wiring, first of all, it starts wiring habits that force us to cave, particularly when we start a diet. So typically what happens when we start a diet, you go on the diet and it's got this whole long list of food restrictions, right? You can't have this and you can't have this and you can't have this and you can't have this. And what happens in our brain as soon as you start a diet that tells you you can't have something, you crave it even more, right? You crave it even more. You can't stop thinking about it. And that's because of the survival instinct in our brain. Our brains aren't hardwired for success. They're hardwired for survival. And as soon as you start introducing food restriction into your brain, food is survival to your brain. So it starts actually wiring cravings and obsessions into your brain until you actually cave. And then when you cave, it wires that act of caving into an autopilot habit that you stop really controlling after a while. This is one of the reasons why people who have a history of dieting maybe are fairly successful on the first couple of diets that they do, but the more diets they do, the faster they start caving after a while. Because as soon as the food restriction enters the brain, the brain goes, oh, I know what to do, crave. And as soon as you crave, you cave. And it's just a complete autopilot habit that we don't even know happens. And the other thing that happens, as I said, when we start thinking that, you know, I'm bad because I ate this food, we treat ourselves the way we believe we deserve to be treated. So when we're told you are what you eat and this food is bad, you start to believe you're bad when you eat the bad things. And if you believe at your core that you are bad, you punish yourself with food. And that's basically what overeating is. That's what binging is. And that's even what severe calorie restriction is. That's punishing yourself just by not giving yourself food. And all of this is just habits that are happening in our brain that half the time we don't even really understand or realize are happening. Yeah, that's powerful, the psychology of it. Because I know with the sub the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, the subconscious mind is influenced through um feeling mm-hmm. and also through imagination. Because our brain can't tell the difference between what's real and what's imagined. If we put feeling with it and that's what imprints our subconscious mind. So whatever we place in front of it, we will become that we will experience that. So when you're talking about 
people with all of these restrictions, that's all they see. Okay, I can't have this. I can't have that. But they keep moving in that direction. And it seems out of control, like they cave in because that's what they have placed in front of them. And on the other hand, as you say, change your relationship and start really thinking about what you can do. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the power in life. I say this life is like this. Uh, It's not it's what we see, what what we put in front of us, we will become. Mm. Right. So we have to constantly put things in front of us and constantly see it and uh, visualize it. Right. And what happens in the world, particularly in the world of people that diet is is we start to see ourselves failing, right? Because of this cycle that happens in our brain, we start to see ourselves failing. So then we start writing this story in our brain, exactly like you said, what we see, we become. So we start writing this story in our brain that we're just a failure. And that just ends up like, I've talked to women in their seventies who have been dieting since they were like teenagers, because they have these stories written in their head that, started just because of that first diet and they just live in this pattern you know it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy what we see we become exactly like you said I'm such a failure I can't stick to anything and so I just keep falling off of any everything and I just keep gaining weight my whole life yeah I have this saying that man can't turn from something until he turns to something so the power in life is not stopping uh eating something the power in life is starting. That's what mm. sustains us, what we mm. do. And we just build momentum onto that. Well, exactly. And what I've realized specifically with the food thing is that if you take away all of the r- rules and restrictions, then your brain stops being scared. It's not going to have the foods anymore. So the cravings will start to go away. And you stop feeling like you're bad if you eat something bad. So you stop feeling com- this compulsive need to keep punishing yourself with food and what's, and you can start to pay attention to how the foods you're eating are making you feel rather than trying to live up to some expectation of eating perfect and restricting all of your favorites. You just start paying attention to how the foods you're eating are making your body feel. And you start automatically wanting to make better choices. It is a complete and total switch that changes everything. And it is just because of the stuff going on in your brain. Yes. So I'm going to make a statement and I just want you to just expound on it. So you believe that it is possible for someone to change their physical existence, their weight and their struggles by changing their thought patterns. I believe that not only is it possible, I believe that it's required. And the fact that we have been ignoring our brains while trying to change our physical health or weight is the reason why it's failing everybody. The current paradigm is not working. 98% of people who lose weight on a diet regain it all. And two thirds of them, as many as two thirds of them, will weigh 11 pounds more than they started within five years. Not only is it possible, it is required to use our thought patterns and our brain to change our physical health and our weight. Absolutely, yes. Yes, so you have been doing some great things and transforming people's lives through nutrition and just weight trainer, personal trainer, rather award-winning mm-hmm. personal trainer and mm-hmm. nutrition and wellness coach. So this, all of these things that you're doing, how on earth did you not like just give up and Because we have so many cases that we can see over time and just different experiences of where people just gave up. Mm. Why did Ronnie not give up when she could have given up? Hmm. Excellent question. Because trust me when I tell you I could have given up a bit of a trillion times in the last 12 years or so. I think in the beginning when I first started uh, you know, working out and getting into fitness and competing and, and all of those things. I think in the beginning, it was purely because I was desperately trying to prove that I was worth something. It was just this underlying desperation to just feel worthy in life. 
And I knew that if I, or I thought that if I just worked hard enough, then I can get there. And I, that stopped being my driving force. Probably the last time I competed when I was on stage, you know, 20 other women on stage with me. And I walked off of the stage carrying my first place trophy. I was the best one on there. And, you know, I have this big smile on my face, but it's still, I'm still, there's still all of the shame and self-loathing hiding underneath that I thought winning was going to fix. So in the beginning, again, it was just this desperate need to feel like I was worth something. Once I realized that the chasing those things wasn't going to get me that feeling, um, it became survival really for me because I knew that I could like, I just had this trust, I suppose somewhere in me that life was meant to be more than what I was living. Like I was not put on this planet to spend the short amount of time I have here at war with my body and with food and with life. I just had this, there has to be more. And, and I had this vision of who I, I wanted to be or who I was supposed to be. And I just held onto that vision and I just kept working towards her. And, you know, there were many days where I, I couldn't do anything. I would, you know, in bed in the fetal position, depression is not something that's easily overcome, you know? So there were many days where, you know, it's not like I was in this nonstop battle forward. <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. It's just, there was always this belief that I was meant for more and that there's more to life than living this way. And I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to give up on myself until I get there. Well, that shows a lot of resilience from you. I've heard, I've heard you make a statement just now about winning the competition. You were first, but yet mm -hmm. you felt unfulfilled i've heard that in athletes who've won championships and mm. after the fact they said uh deon sanders for example i heard him doing an interview several years ago and he said that he had just won the super bowl and before 12 well he said he went almost straight home afterwards and he just found himself in his house by himself and it wasn't fulfilling so yeah. he was missing something. He was like one of the top athletes during his heyday, but yet that wasn't fulfilling to him. So I guess it's important for the individual to have that hunger for themselves to know that there must be more than their present situation. Right. And I think like I think a lot of it, I'm certainly not unique in that I chased success to fill something that was missing within me. Like, I think, I think that's really common for a lot of athletes and, and business people and just people in general. I think that we chase that feeling of feeling like we're enough through succeeding. And for me, it was just through my body for Deion Sanders. Maybe it was through, I'm sorry. I don't remember what sport he plays. Super Bowl. Football. Said. <laughs> Football. Yeah, I'm really bad with sports. <laughs> <laughs> that's embarrassing <laughs> but you know like we chase these feelings like you know it's like this whole of self-worth that we have in us and we chase these feelings through everything outside of us and then we get that thing and we go oh gee that didn't make me feel the way it was supposed to make me feel now what <laughs> next thing <laughs> that'll do it <laughs> yes it's a constant searching right yeah. And so for me, I just kind of went, okay, no, like I, I have to figure out how to fix the stuff in me that's causing me to feel like I have to get these feelings from outside of myself. And again, that also comes down to the thoughts and beliefs that we tell ourselves over the years, right? Like it starts as an initial thought, but the more we live it, the more it becomes a subconscious belief that just runs our life that we don't even realize is doing it. Yeah. So you're a mindfulness based cognitive behavioral coach. So when did you begin focusing on that? It was sort of a gradual transformation for me. Um, probably three years ago, 
I started really trying to help clients with food issues. You know, when personal training clients would come to me, I would really start trying to help them with their food issues. But most of them just didn't want that part of it. They wanted to be told what to eat and how to exercise to get the perfect body that they wanted. And that's all they cared about. And so for a couple of years, I tried to just sort of walk the line there. I was like on the fence trying to be the personal trainer that was helping them with the mindfulness stuff, right? Like with the brain stuff. And really probably like in the last year, um, year and a half, two years, I suppose. It was just, I can't, I can't do the training anymore because it's not working for people. (laughs) And the other thing about the training, like the, the body transformation and stuff is that stuff is not permanent, right? Like even when somebody would come to me and they would make progress, they have to keep eating that way. And they have to keep exercising that way forever for the results to last. And most people don't. But with the brain training, it not only transforms your body, it transforms your entire life and in a way that lasts. It's not like exercising where the results are undone when you stop doing it. It completely changes everything forever. And so probably in the last two years in particular, and then last year, sometime middle of last year, I finally went, that's it. No more training. This is all I'm doing. And that was scary because you know, I I could pay my bills as a trainer. It's easy to get clients that way. All you have to do is pop up a a before and after picture of client weight loss success and you get new clients. So it was, it was a really scary transition to make um, because I didn't, didn't know how to, how to get clients this way. I know how to transform people this way, but I, it was, it's a tougher, it's a tougher pull because you don't have those visuals. Like I can't show a before and after of somebody's brain. (laughs) (laughs) true true so um so how can someone begin the process of rewiring their brain and their thought patterns so the first and easiest thing to start doing is start paying attention to why they're eating what they're eating and i'm I'm just talking in terms of food but pretty much in terms like the same, the same um, system works for everything, right? So with food, it's why am I eating that? Am I hungry? What thoughts was I just thinking? Like one of my clients one time, for example, was saying that um, she's in the mirror in the morning. She woke up in the morning feeling pretty good. She gets in the mirror, she's brushing her teeth, and she sees a wrinkle in her forehead. And all of a sudden, she starts deciding she's going to go have a piece of chocolate. So, so when we talked through the process, she realized when she saw the wrinkle in her forehead, her brain went, oh, you're so old and gross food, right? So it's really about noticing the thought, the way that thought makes you feel, and then the behavior that happens after it. I looked in the mirror and I hated what I saw. My brain said, you're fat and ugly. That made me feel really bad about myself. And so I reached for something, quote, bad. So that requires people to begin the process also of being mindful, being in the present moment, because there's a lot of times that it's almost like we're just existing and just going from one thing to the other and not really Mm -hmm. extracting the best out of life or even being pleasured by what is happening right now. Although things may not be perfect in your life, we can still enjoy the sun if it's shining. We can enjoy the rain if it's raining. We can smell the smell when it's raining or the snow or whatever. Just those little small things, the leaves off of the trees that we could Bring us in that present moment so we can feel. Oftentimes, we don't feel in life and it causes us not to be able to extract the good things out of life. Oh, 100%. And as a matter of fact, in the case of, you know, people who overeat and binge and things, we purposely don't feel. We are purposely trying not to feel. So 
absolutely, you have to be mindful and in the moment for this process to even work. Because if you're not in the moment, then you can't unravel the stuff going on in your head, right? You have to be in the moment to, to even notice what's happening. But I've, I, you know, I read somewhere that something like 45 to 50% of our day, we literally just go on autopilot all day. We're not even aware of our actions. Our brain is just, you know, point A to point B. It's, you know, like brushing your teeth. You go into the bathroom to brush your teeth. You don't even know you're doing it. Driving to work, you don't even know you're doing it. You're just on autopilot. One of my clients uh, said to me yesterday or today, this morning, I guess, she was saying how, you know, she's been practicing the mindfulness aspect of this. And she's been saying how she notices how much she feels like she has so much more time in her day now because she's so much more aware of what's going on around her, right? Because otherwise you just go, go through the day with blinders on and you don't notice the sun. You don't notice the leaves changing on the trees. You don't notice the, you know, flowers as you're going by them and you're not, you're not living life. You're just existing in life. Yes. That's, um, yeah, that's telling um, in our society, especially where we're so driven, driven to achieve things, mm. money, fame, you name it. We just want to be always the best. Yeah. But there's a place for that. It's to be the best version of ourselves, how we should begin to change that psyche. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And I think there's a lot in our society, too, that, you know, everybody's trying to live up to what everybody, whatever, what they think everybody else expects them to be. And I did this myself for a long time, too. Like, you know, who do I have to be to be acceptable to everybody around me? And so we go through life just trying to be who we think we're supposed to be rather than just living authentically the way that we want to live to make us happy. And then that contributes to, you know, these just wanting to numb everything and, and just living in this autopilot life because we're not happy and or fulfilled because we're not living authentically. Yeah, true. How do you, how do your family members perceive this new version of you and they know that you've overcome these different things? How do they um, perceive this newness of you? So, I mean, family's always proud, right? Like they're yeah. always telling you, I'm so proud of you. You're so amazing. All the whatever. <laughs> but my mom in particular has been um, pretty cool because a lot of the stuff that I've dealt with in my life, I sort of inherited from my mother and not to, not to sound like I'm trying to blame her or anything because we all do, right? Like we tend to pick up, you know, some of the stuff that our, that our parents carry. And so a lot of the stuff, especially with like weight and food and things that I've struggled with, I, I picked up from my mom. And so as I've been making this, you know, this sort of, I don't want to call it the new version of me. I think this is just who I was, who I was all along. It just took me a while to figure it out. <laughs> but, you know, I've, as I've been making this transition and experiencing all this growth and, and sharing what I've been learning along the way, my mom has been changing as well in some really incredible ways. So it's not just that she's, you know, I'm proud of you. That's great. But she's also seen it transform a number of things in her own life. And so she's always telling me, like messaging me different things about how I've been helping her, which is, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is because you know what, like, as you said, we inherit, inherit some things, a lot of things from mm -hmm. our upbringing, our yeah. parents or whoever our caregivers were in our family line. And the interesting thing about that is once someone overcomes something, it gives power and momentum in that family, just like Roger Bannister, I believe he was the first person to run the four minute mile. Mm, so yeah. after that, there were thousands of people began to run the four minute mile when at first no one thought it was even possible. So what we overcome, we can almost stick a stake as if we conquered that particular thing. And then it causes other people to get more confidence and then they could take that on as well and become a better self, 
they can become better and overcome some things. Because, you know, like there are some weaknesses in every family, right? Mm. There are some weaknesses. But once one person overcomes that, that could be a catalyst for generations to come Mm. to be able to dominate in that space. And that becomes what was once an Achilles heel becomes their strength, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think that, I mean, for me, anyway, I think that the goal should just always be to leave the next generation better than ours. And so that's my goal. And not even just in my family, right? It's, it's in the world. So with my daughter, I want to leave, I want my daughter to grow up in this world as a better version than I was. Right. And, you know, I'm helping my mom because I've learned, you know, a little bit better than she learned through her life. Right. So it's like every generation just sort of breaks through that glass ceiling of the last generation and grows and gets better and better and better. Yes, I believe that's the way it's supposed to be. There's this thread that binds us. Mm. yeah yeah and I see in my daughter all of the time I'm I'm always kidding thank goodness she's so much better than I was at her age (laughs) and I don't know I don't know how I did it but somehow or other I've raised somebody that's better than me so (laughs) yeah I remember growing up my um one of my family members would say to me say don't don't be like me be better than me and I didn't realize what they were saying as at the time as a kid you know they just want you know like stand on my shoulders and go higher yeah yeah I just heard do as I say not as I do (laughs) I've heard that too (laughs) and I've probably said it (laughs) yes I've definitely heard that one too so are you working on any uh new projects currently so I started another book that has been a long process because I'm always working on some project or another. I've got several different groups running in the local areas around here, and I've got an online group for my cognitive eating. Cognitive eating is the, um, just the, the online course that I've created that combines the best of mindful eating, the best of intuitive eating, and cognitive behavioral strategies. So I've got several of those running right now. I've got another one starting in a local community in a couple of weeks. And um, what else do I have on the go? Oh, I just recently started putting together a new project called The Real Diet Story that I haven't gotten much ground on yet because I've got, I'm always on doing 20 different programs at, projects at once. But my real diet story is where I'm I want to highlight the stories of women who have spent their lives dieting. And so my goal is for every single before and after picture that somebody sees online, I want there to be the real diet story behind that. Because the real diet story is that sure, they may lose weight, but what happens afterwards, they regain it and they feel ashamed and they stay in that cycle forever. And so that's that's my hope with my real diet story project. I just want to highlight some of those stories and just start a conversation around this. You know, I was technically a diet success when I was sitting on the floor of my bathroom trying to make myself throw up because I had just eaten an entire bag of candy, right? Like, I really want to start talking about what dieting is doing to us. So that's the purpose of my diet story project. And um, yeah, just trying to build up cognitive eating because I really believe that this is the path to the future and, and, and is, has the ability to revolutionize the way we look at healthy eating and weight loss in general for that matter. Good. So what was the name of your first book? Oh, Life on the Reflux Roller Coaster. So my first book wasn't related to um, health and fitness or any, any of these things. My first book was about my daughter. She was born with health issues when she was a baby. And so the first book that I wrote was about um, just the first year of her life and trying to live with her condition as severe as it was, raising awareness, that kind of thing, helping other parents. I guess I've always kind of been in this position of let me turn my pain into my purpose kind of a thing. I had created a website back then. It was one of the biggest on the internet for that condition. And and so I wrote a book on that. And so now I'm 
and and I'm tentatively titling titling it "Life on the Diet Roller Coaster" <laughs> as a follow up. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Okay, so um, where would be people be able to even get your first book? Where could they uh, get it from? Oh, I'm not even sure it's still in production, actually. Okay. But I think Amazon, probably Amazon, still has copies of it. Amazon. Okay. I don't. I don't think it's still in print, but Amazon would probably have like used copies and stuff. I think they're probably still there. Okay. Okay. And your upcoming book, you just have somewhat of a working title. It's right a working now. title. It's a work in progress. Yeah, I'm hoping. I'm aiming for next year, but we'll see. Okay. Okay, good. So how can people get in contact with you, uh, social media contact or? So my website's probably the easiest. It's just www.ronniedavis.com. That's R-O-N-I-D-A-V-I-S.com. And then I'm also on Facebook, Ronnie Davis, figure athlete. I'm still on Facebook as Ronnie Davis, figure athlete. (laughs) And I'm also on Twitter. I have an Instagram, but I, I rarely use it. So Facebook or my website is probably the the best way. Okay. So any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with anyone who could be having some challenges with eating, dieting, weight gain, weight loss, and they are feeling as though they're by themselves. They may not have, they may not be strong enough to even share what they're going through with other people who could possibly help them. What would mm. you encourage? How would you encourage them? So I think that I would say that you can't change anything until you find the strength to reach out for help. And it's not as scary as you think it is because there are millions of other people living the exact same way who would be desperate to hear that they're not alone too. And so reaching, help, reaching out for help is really the best way to just start the process of, of finding freedom and living a more full, happy life. And that it is absolutely possible to get there because I'm proof. And I would also say that you can't change anything while you still believe you deserve to be punished. Wow. Powerful words. I know this is going to help so many people. I really do. Um, because I hope so. I know a lot of people suffer in silence. Mm, so, yeah, for yeah. sure. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So you're still Thank there. you so much, Maurice. I really appreciate you having me on. You're welcome. And I really appreciate you for being a guest. And my pleasure. You help so many people again. And I'm wishing you the best as you continue your, this journey and this cause to help so many more people. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you for listening to The New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, The New Mind Creator. This podcast has been sponsored by Abundant Sports and Truth Serum. Head over to www.maurice.com to receive more motivation and insight to help create your new mind.